my clothes were drenched in blood. I mean, they're, they're soaked. They're red. My hat was red. My, my jacket was red. My pants were red. And I remember thinking, okay, I have to stop the bleeding and I have to find my tent. So I, I wrapped a game bag around my head cause I could feel I had huge flaps off, off my temple area. And so I just wrapped a game bag around my head and, uh, texted my hunting partner and texted my wife and, and said, Hey, look, something happened. I'm bleeding, but I don't think it's an emergency. I'm going to try to find my way back to the tent. This segment of DOD TV is brought to you by Leopold American to the core. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Drury Outdoors 100% Wild Podcast, episode number 179. 179, can you believe it? Titled Backcountry Boulder Dash. <laughs> In your face. In your face. I don't think our guest is going to find that funny, Tim. Uh, we're not known for being funny. So why start now? <laughs> That's true. So excited about our guest. We'll introduce that in a second. Before we do, you took Sophie out and uh, you guys harvested a doe this past weekend. Yeah, didn't yeah. You? After after hunting for the past three years, she's hunted two years. She took a year off last year. I think she just kind of got burnt out sick with it. Of, not, sick of her dad. <laughs> like, my dad's not a good hunting guy, so I'm going <laughs> to stop going. This year, uh, because you got that Mission Sub 1 crossbow and let me borrow mm-hmm. it, she was much more apt to go out with that. She's still a little spooked by firearms. Yeah. So so we got out, set up a blind and on a, on a food plot that we put in this summer, and, uh, and this doe came in exactly as I had hoped it would happen, walked into probably 18 yards. And then started getting a little spooky about the the big black triangle of the yeah. blind window that she was seeing. Cause we had, we popped up a blind that afternoon, which yeah, I don't sure. like to do, but we had to because of the wind. And, um, Sophie's kind of looking around through the scope. She's like, I can't find it. I can't because it was so darn close. Um, the doe was quartering to us, which is not a great shot, but she'd been shooting really well. So I felt good about her ability to hit the mark. And she's like, can I, can I pull the trigger? And I was like, please do. Cause I'm, I'm anxious. Like this is, it's a big deal for her. And it's something I've looked forward to almost my entire life. Sure. As soon as you get into hunting, you're like, oh, I want to do this for my kids someday. And she, she smoked her. And, uh, but she ran off. It was, she partially hit gut and I was concerned that we wouldn't be able to find her. Um, all we found was some blood, uh, some blood mixed with gut material, but not a whole lot. So, uh, I said, let's back out, come back tomorrow morning. I know it sucks because she really wanted to lay hands on that deer, but I was like, let's not push it on the drive out of the property. I turned the headlights off in the hopes that I would see the orange lighted knock on the end of the bolt. Yeah. And sure enough, back in some tall weeds on the way up a ridge, maybe about 60 yards away from where the shot occurred, I see a little pinprick of light. And I was like, Sophie, I see your bolt. There's no guarantee your deer's attached to it, but let's go at least check it out. Yep. Trying to temper her expectations all along the way here. And and we, we walked up to it and sure enough, her deer was lying there. Dead. Perfect. Good eating. Dead. It, it was great. It was great. She had a friend over Saturday night. And so I went ahead and made the tenderloins. I pan fried them. Uh, and her friend ate like a, a, a pile of, of tenderloin because I'll cut it and then I'll pound it out flat and then bread it and uh, pan fry it in bacon grease. It's 
It's it's really good. I would know you've never brought any in for us. I brought some in today. I happened oh. to eat it though before I got a chance to offer. Perfect. I intended to offer you part of the sandwich. Sure. I just forgot. Yeah. Okay. So sorry. All right. Uh, but but her friend loved it. So she's been taking victory laps all weekend with her deer. She's really excited. Then Sunday night she asked if she could go hunting on Monday. Awesome. And I was like, you she's got, hooked. You got school. No, we're not going hunting. But I. I fully appreciate that. Pretty awesome, man. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you. So she's excited. If you want to see the hunt, it's up in DeerCast. Awesome. All right. Well, why don't we have our next guest join us and uh, introduce this guy. I'm excited about this one, a guy I've known for a long, long time, and he's going to, he takes adventure to a whole new level. Yeah. We got Brad Clement, who has uh, endured the Dre Outdoors spanking machine. That sounds horrible. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but is it is it false? No. Okay, so let's dig in. So Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, Matt, great to see you again. It's been too long. Yeah, that's right. So a little backstory, Brad uh, used to probably in the... Um, around 2004, 2003, 2004, 2005, somewhere in there, he was, uh, he filmed with Mark and Terry and, uh, somewhere along the line, he got, uh, put with Terry mostly. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the, I guess it'd be about Oh four. Cause that was when he just got the farm that he owns now. Yeah. I started with Terry on his Illinois farm and we filmed the first season of dream season in Missouri that year. And that's, that's when right. I started. And then Terry and I left, we literally left from uh, filming dream season. And, you know, Terry drives like 95 miles an hour and he's like, yeah, just follow me to this farm in Illinois. And I'm nervous and, and trying to keep up with them. And, and that's, that's how we started. It was that week or so in Missouri filming dream season. That was my first time ever Yeah, in, in uh, zooming over to Illinois and from there, you know, the rest is history. So that would have been dreams. So I'm trying to think of where, I think, yeah, that'd have been 2003. And you know, it's one of those deals where I, you know, at that time, dream season was such a big deal for us internally. And we've talked about it on podcasts before with like Kyle and JJ. And that was the beginning. Like we were trying to break ground and and do something way different and, and kind of start a new era, not only in outdoor television and reality television, but for our company. Yeah. And so, you know, you probably saw Mark and Terry at their peak, um, analness. Oh, <laughs> like, <laughs> and that's saying something because <laughs> we all know how they can be. So, you know, we're, we're going to get into probably some funny stories at the end of this podcast. Cause, cause you were, like I said, you were with Mark and Terry for a few years there. And I know that was, there were some good ha- times had, uh, in Kirksville along the way. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brad's got some serious outdoor cred. Oh yeah, more so than most guys. Like a lot of guys say, "Yeah, I like to hike." I I'm backpack, an outdoors man. That uh, kind of stuff. Have you ever been past base camp three? Like that, but that, that's the separator of people. Yeah. So, so Brad, you have, uh, um, you have been to the peak of Everest how many times now? I've done five expeditions to Everest. Uh, to the top only twice. 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 Uh, only five twice. Expeditions. And it was always filming and you know, filming for Discovery or PBS. Uh, so so it was, it's been a cool part of, you know, cool chapter of my life, uh, spending about a decade working on on Everest. Yeah, a lot. And a lot of the things that you've done have probably been seen by, you know, some of our audience who, you know, anytime that that stuff goes on, you're always like 
tuned right into it. You're thrilled by, you're like, who the hell's filming this? Oh, it's Brad. <laughs> Brad's the crazy guy filming it all. Which, which is incredible because you think about just getting on Everest, but then lugging around the camera gear that's required for, for filming that. Well, and back then it was even bigger than it is now, right? I mean, it was yeah. a lot of gear. Now it's all pretty tiny cameras and they do an excellent job. But yeah, they were, they were big cameras and you know, I was young and stupid, so uh, <laughs> it all worked out. So, so you you had been to the top on both. Which sides? Because it's two sides, right? Well, the the kind of the the standard routes. Uh, there's a south side route and there's a north side route. And yeah, I've climbed to the top from both sides, uh, which is which is cool, and it's cool to see. It's cool to see that whole mountain, and and it, you know, to do that mountain or any big mountain, you really immerse yourself in that world and to get to experience all sides of that mountain and, and all the cultures and all the uh, intricacies of the geology and then just the different technical requirements to, to get up on that mountain from, from various sides is, is cool. It's fun. It's awesome. It's really become something much different in the last probably five years than it was 10 years, 15 years ago, hasn't it? I mean, it's a little, it's been, you know, you hear a lot of um, negative publicity about kind of what's happened to the mountain. I mean, what are your views on, on that type of stuff? I know it's awesome that more and more people are experiencing it, but uh, it seems like, you know, there's more and more commercialized. Yeah. Commercialized. There's more trash kind of being left behind all those types of things. Yeah. Yeah. The first year I went to Everest was 2004. The last year I went to Everest, certainly not the last year, I'm still actively uh, filming and guiding expeditions to the big peaks, but the last year I was Everest was 2014. So that's a decade of, you know, kind of a window view of what happened from a human side on that mountain. And it, it's changed. The personality of, of the expeditions have changed. I, I would hate to criticize anyone who wants to go there. Uh, it's, it's still an Everest experience and good for them. It's just changed quite a bit. It's much more commercial, much more run by guiding agencies. Yeah. Not a lot of private people, individuals are just showing up, climbing it, or even trying new routes. Uh, every year someone tries a new route, uh, but the majority of the people who are in those crowds are getting larger and larger and larger. Uh, those crowds typically do one of two routes and they're guided and that's just the way it is these days. So very different from certainly when I first started out and very different from, I started guiding as a mountaineer guide in the nineties. And so from the late nineties, mid late nineties to 2020, the whole world of mountaineering has changed considerably, but sure. it's not good or bad. It's just the way it is. And, sure. Uh, Everest has, has changed just like the whole world of high altitude climbing. And even Krakauer's book into thin air, that, that event took place in the mid to late nineties. Is that right? 1996. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and even then he was kind of le leading into the fact, like a lot of like chiropractors and, you know, people that, that, that aren't necessarily mountaineers, but they're, they're paying guides to go up. And it sounded like it, things were trending that direction towards less experience, you know, people that have some means, but less experience. And, and, and even though it, it's more commercialized and more people have done it, it's still such a date. I mean, just being at that elevation, your body is, is dying as you're up there, which is just, it's insane to me that people 
Brad. Want to want to do that because it, it's fascinating. I mean, you're. I, I, did you see dead bodies when you're up there? Are, are they? I did every year I was up there. Uh, the last year I was there, 2014, we were doing a project for Google, and we were kind of we were top secret. We were there before most of the team showed up uh-huh. and we were at camp one, which is pretty low. It's uh, just under 20,000 feet. And uh, that morning uh, that we, the morning after we'd reached camp one, there was a, a huge avalanche that, that came down 10,000 vertical feet. So it's not like a small, I mean, this is a lot of material coming down this mountain and it killed uh, 16 people, 500 feet below us. And, um, we, our team were were part of the first responders and it it was a horrible situation. And at that point I realized, you know, I need to maybe step back from Everest for a little while. And, uh, it would take a lot for me to go back. It would have to be just the right team, just the right circumstance, just the right, uh, cinematography project to, to get me back there. I, I kind of feel like that was a great, again, a great chapter uh, of my life, but uh, that was a, that was a decent wake up call that uh, I'd always been involved in accidents and deaths. I knew that was a reality of mountaineering, but to uh, respond to 16 people who, <sighs> who had been crushed by 10,000 feet of ice and snow was, was, uh, that was, Interesting. And I remember you telling me about that when you got back and saying that as you guys were going through the, the past, the avalanche happened or, or whatever you call it, you you kind of even said this it didn't look right or seemed a little dangerous, yeah. right? Yeah, there was a huge, we call them seracs. And so seracs are blocks of ice. And this block of ice, again, was, was thousands of feet above our route. And it looked like yeah, the size of several hotels just hanging over the route. Jeez. And we all knew that, wow, this, I don't know, this doesn't look right. <laughs> let's, let's get through here quickly. Yeah. Uh, and, and sadly the guys that came up the next morning just weren't as lucky. Hey, there was a story you told me once. I think it was the, maybe the first time you went up, you were filming a guy for maybe a pharmaceutical company. It was, it was, did he have diabetes or? Yeah, he had type one diabetes. He's a, a fantastic guy. I mean, great guy. But yeah, he had type one diabetes, and that puts a lot of stress on your body, uh, which is already under stress at these altitudes. And so you guys were working your way up. And how far did you reach before kind of he? We were on, we were on our summit push. We were filming for Discovery Channel, and uh, ended up being a really cool six part series. But I was filming Will. And we were on our summit push and yeah, Will, uh, uh, our oxygen systems stopped working, which isn't great. And, and, uh, Will the day. started <laughs> not to be able to see, he essentially was going blind. Uh, so yeah, we, we had to get Will out of there and, and we did. And what's funny is Will went back, he summited Everest, he summited several 8,000 meter peaks of which there are only 14 in the world. Mm-hmm. He's fantastic. But we, we left that trip feeling bad that we didn't reach the summit, but, but lifelong friends. And so it worked out and, you know, we got him off the mountain and he regained his sight. That's good. (laughs) Yeah. So, so, you know, originally the reason I, I wanted you to come on here a couple weeks back, you had, so Terry sent Mark and myself a text message with a picture of your face and in a tent 
somewhere on a mountain and looked like you had gotten the tar beat out of you. And yeah. so come to find out you, you were elk hunting in Colorado, correct? Which is you live in Colorado and you yeah. were backcountry elk hunting, self-guided type of a deal. You do it every, every year and, uh, had an accident. So take us through what happened on this. Well, it was funny. So every year, um, I always remember Terry's birthday because that's usually when we'd kind of get together to start filming again. And he was, you know, he's, he's an old man. I, I wanted to wish him a, a happy birthday and <laughs> hope his hair hadn't turned uh, quite as gray as mine is turning now. But, uh, oh no, yeah. it's white. <laughs> <laughs> Wished him a happy birthday. And he mentioned uh, he was, he was at the uh, lake with Willa and I was like, wow, you know, say, say hi to Willa. And we, we were just shooting the shit. And I had just gotten back from, from this elk hunting trip. And he was like, how are you? And I sent him that photo that then I guess he sent you. In the yeah. park. And so I sent him that photo. I was like, well, this was earlier this morning and I just got back. And so, so what happened was uh, years ago, a friend of mine here in Colorado, he and I sat down and we said, you know, we've never elk hunted. We should, we're in Colorado. We should, we should go elk hunting. And we, we didn't want to put in for long draws and permits. And we're like, okay, so we're going to go national forest, public access over the counter, which are like your worst odds <laughs> for getting good elk. Mm -hmm. Strike anyway. one, two, and three. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So, so we started drinking some bourbon at a local bar, <laughs> pulled out all these maps and looked at where those three qualifications fit. <laughs> and we basically just said, Where's the steepest, nastiest, hardest place to access that might have good elk access, but where no one would really want to hike to? And we just like threw our fingers at this point, didn't scout, went up there the first year and there were elk everywhere. Nice. It was fantastic because yeah. it's, it's nasty to get there. And so we've been going there ever since. And Matt, I've sent you some photos. We've, we've pulled out some decent bulls. Oh, yeah. And... Went back this year. My buddy Ted came in with me for a few days, but he had to get back to work. And so for another seven days, I was by myself and I had two days left to hunt. And because you know, there are tons of wildfires right now in Colorado and they've been burning most of the summer, it, it must have affected the elk patterns. We weren't seeing any animals, not even any real sign. And we attempted to go into a new area. So we were going kind of exploring in areas we weren't familiar with. Ted left. I was still trying to hunt this area. And uh, basically what happened is I sat and I wish I could tell you more. I, I, I just don't remember what happened. So I was sitting in a boulder field, just a big pile of rocks overlooking a, a really beautiful meadow with a wallow and hunted there in the evening. All I remember, you know, it, it gets dark that time of year around seven 30 at night. I woke up, it was dark. I w I just was face down. And all I remember thinking is I'm bleeding from my head. I don't remember what happened. I don't remember what caused this incident and looking back at my texts, what's funny is uh, as remote as we are, I had chosen a campsite and I'd hunted 
this area in the evening because I had a really decent cell signal. And so looking back at my texts, the first texts I sent were around 8.30 at night. Uh, so I don't know if I was knocked out for an hour. I don't know if that's just when I started to kind of recollect and come to consciousness of what was going on. I don't remember standing up. I don't remember moving, but my clothes were drenched in blood. I mean, they're, they're soaked. They're red. My hat was red. My, my jacket was red. My pants were red. And I remember thinking, okay, I have to stop the bleeding and I have to find my tent. So I, I wrapped a game bag around my head cause I could feel I had huge flaps off, off my temple area. And so I just wrapped a game bag around my head and uh, texted my hunting partner and texted my wife and, and said, Hey, look, something happened. I'm bleeding, but I don't think it's an emergency. I'm going to try to find my way back to the tent. If that's not an emergency, what the <laughs> hell is there? So good blood. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't make it in Colorado. Apparently. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so I did find my tent, uh, which was good. Uh, you know, I had a headlamp. What's, what's weird is within minutes of kind of realizing something was messed up, I became pretty lucid and put my headlamp on, uh, knew the terrain. I was like, okay, I, I need to go this way and then that way. And eventually kind of stumbled upon my tent, which took, I think it took about two hours, which is, is longer than it should wow. have taken. And, uh, and, uh, got back to my tent. Uh, I rarely take a first aid kit of, of any magnitude, but I always take a few things. I take, uh, tape, and I take a syringe, not with a needle, but, but a plunger. Sure. So I, I washed out all the wounds with water. Uh, I, have, I have cuts all over my face, but the main cut was up here. And, and what was I the washed temperature it all out, bread? put gauze on it, just taped the heck out of it. And figured, okay, it's dark. It's about eight miles back to my truck and several thousand feet of descent most of which is off trail. It'd be stupid to try to hike out in the dark. That's yeah. just going to worsen the situation. So I just, you know, went to bed, uh, communicated with, with Ted and my wife, Tanya. Uh, they knew roughly where I was because Ted and I had scouted that area before he left, but he didn't know exactly where my tent was, but, but he knew the general area. And uh, I said, look, I, you know, Ted's a former uh, EMT medical professional. He, he was asking me all sorts of questions like, okay, do you know what year it is? Do you know, you know, mm -hmm. you know who the president is, you know where you are, you know, your name, um, keep drinking water. I'm going to, you need to text me every 15 minutes. Yeah. He, he was great. Uh, Tanya was like, we're calling in the cavalry. We're going to be, you know, I was, I was <laughs> like, helicopter. Yeah. yeah. It was like, no, uh, let me sleep. And uh, then I'll, I'll just pack up and hike out in the morning, which is, which is what happened. And there are various parts of that incident that I don't remember, but I do remember kind of the last few steps to my tent. And I like, Matt, I sent you those texts between Ted and I, I don't re really remember sending him those texts. Uh, but once back to the tent, I was fine. And the bleeding semi stopped through the night. Uh, and that's when I took that photo that you guys have seen that woke up in the morning and just took a photo and then put my stuff together and hiked out and drove home. And on the way home, my, my brother-in-law who lives where I do, uh, in Boulder, uh, he's a plastic surgeon. So 
took a photo, a close up of, of the major wounds. I was like, Hey, do you, do you think this needs stitches? And uh, I didn't hear back from him for a day cause he was out of town. And, and his response was, uh, yeah. <laughs> if you <laughs> Why have don't flex. You come in? And so it was, it was really funny. Like he's wearing soccer shorts and flip flops stitching my face up. And, uh, yeah, he said, I, I can't make you look handsome, but I can at least do something to reduce the scars, which I already knew that. So <laughs> that was funny. So to the best of, I mean, if I had to guess what happened was I stood up, you know, the hunt was over, it was getting dark. Uh, and I must have stood up and slipped on a rock because of pretty loose rocks yeah. and maybe fell and hit my head or because it was kind of a cliffy area. Maybe it's something like a small rock or something from above just happened to dislodge and flew down and hit my head. I, I have no idea what happened. Uh, and that, that's, that's kind of it. That's all I know. I would have to think that your experience, your, your vast knowledge and experience through the years as a mountaineer, you know, had to have helped in this situation. Cause you, I mean, you're, you know, downplaying it. You're an even kill guy, you know, but that's a really scary situation. I mean, I think for your average guy, if you're, you know, if that's a first time trip, you know, out West and you're backpacking like that. I mean, I think that would be <laughs> wake up face down. I, I, I blood. think that that would scare the hell out of a lot of people, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, myself included. Uh, so I, I definitely think your experience had to help and keep you because you've seen it all through the years, but, uh, that's a pretty harrowing experience. Yeah. But you know, I figured if I have a brain bleed or something, what can I do? So <laughs> no reason to get too excited because I can, I can control what I can control and what I can't control is the way it is. And so, you know, take the steps you can take and then get the heck out of there when it's safe to do so. So you weren't worried or maybe you were about going to sleep that night. I mean, I would assume if you were unconscious, you, you know, you had some sort of, you obviously have a head injury. Like, were you afraid? And that's the thing they always say not, not to up. do is don't let, you know, you, you know, if you had a concussion or something, don't let them go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I would think that would be a scary part of the evening for you. Well, you know, funny enough, the night before uh, I'd set up this new camp and uh, the my camp is very simple. It's, I don't sleep in a tent. I just have a tarp and it like super lightweight, but I set up this new little camp and, uh, I fell asleep to a mountain lion chirping pretty close to me. Perfect. Uh, and, and so what I was thinking was, thank God, like I wasn't just laying there knocked out bleeding and like a cat thought, Ooh, you know, this is a Easy good pickings. opportunity. Uh, I think I'm going to throw up. <laughs> that's what I was thinking of. I, I wasn't thinking too much. Like I wasn't going to wake up. Uh, I was, I was with it by the time I got to the tent and okay. I, I felt that I'd controlled the bleeding. I palpated my whole head and there was no crunchiness. I hadn't broken anything. I didn't yeah. feel like I had a, a fractured skull. So, so I felt pretty good. Like I just thought, well, this, I was actually more upset that, I wasn't going to hunt the, the next day. I was <laughs> put a crimp in my plans. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I couldn't eat either. Cause I did something to my nose and my teeth and uh, my teeth were really loose for a few days and they Ooh. were bleeding. So I, I hit something I, I, somewhere. I just hit my face Yeah, or, or something hit my face. I don't know what happened, but it just sucked for a few days. It, it seems like so much of survival is, your mental, your frame of mind. Yeah. And will you accept like, this is my reality. 
these are, these are the steps that I have to take to get out of here safely and not make mistakes within that, you know, get a plan in place and execute it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 uh, and something that, that makes sense. That is, that's kind of commensurate with your skills as a, as a mountaineer. Cause sometimes people, they get hurt real bad and they start overestimating their abilities. Like, Oh yeah. Eight miles is not a big deal. Like obviously you're in shape and this is, the small potatoes compared to Everest, but maybe, you know, most normal guys walk in eight miles out of any place is kind of a stretch. So in those conditions. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's, it's very, it's, it's very relative to your skill level, your expertise, your knowledge of the area, all those kind of things. Well, you know, I told Terry when we were trading texts, Said at least I didn't fall out of a tree stand. <laughs> but in all seriousness, he suffered bigger injuries. Uh, he, he was just closer to home. Yeah. And so in the big picture, uh, I think so much that scares people is the unknown, and maybe being in the wilderness would be intimidating to a, to a large population. But it doesn't necessarily have to be. And so I felt comfortable with the way I at least momentarily treated what I could treat yeah. and figured I can get out tomorrow and, and go from there. I, you know, I didn't have broken ribs. I didn't have broken wrists. I didn't have anything that could really be a problem. Other it, than it, a it, busted head. <laughs> <laughs> Flesh wound. Hey, we don't need this. <laughs> yeah. I, one of my buddies was, this just goes to the nature of accidents. You don't know they're coming. They just happen. My buddy and his wife were, were walking along the Katy Trail, which is an old rails to trail project here in the St. Louis area uh, along the Missouri River. They sat down at a bench and a piece of rock gave way from the the limestone bluff there where they had cut through for the old railroad tracks, tumbled down the, the cliffside, struck him in the back of the head. It almost it almost killed him. Like he's a completely changed person now. And him and his wife were just sitting there side by side, and this like two pound chunk of rock comes tumbling down. Crazy. And nails him. You know, what are the odds? But stuff like that happens. Yeah. Traumatic brain injuries are crazy, and it makes you realize how how fragile. I mean, we're strong in, in many ways, but how fragile the networking is with the brain. So, uh, which which, and I'm sorry for your friend, but that also told me when this happened because I was so lucid that I, you know, even if I had had a concussion or or you know been knocked out for whatever an hour, um, I was lucid. And I was still myself and I could, I could tell that as could the people I was texting. So yeah, you're loopy in general. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the scar only helps. It, it, it can only help the general appearance and allure yeah. of my uh, uh, poor personality. It, it, it gives you an excuse, quite frankly, of why you're so crazy. I got hit head. <laughs> yeah, I was, fell off a mountain. <laughs> do you have any desire to go back and try to recreate, like try to do some forensics and figure out just what happened? So I went back before I hiked out, uh, I kind of had to hike through the area I had been hunting the, the previous night to okay. get back out. And I looked around for a while. I knew right where I was sitting. Uh, I went back to that spot. What's funny is there was no blood there, even though I had blood all over me. So did it happen in that spot? I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't have, I don't have enough dots to connect to, to even know that it absolutely happened where I had been sitting. I assume it did. 
Uh, I was hunting muzzle loader, so it was black powder. My rifle is fine. My backpack, uh-huh. I carry a little backpack. Everything was packed perfectly. So I don't think I packed up after the accident. I must have packed up first, but I didn't fall because the rifle was fine. It wasn't yeah. scratched or anything. <laughs> and I was in a huge boulder field. It would have been pretty messed up. So I don't know exactly what happened. And uh, it's a mystery. I'm going to blame the aliens. We'll go back to Mark and our uh, Terry and Coondog story. They took them, they roughed them up, and then they put them back. Yeah. <laughs> like, ah, oh, this Classic one's no good. abduction story. <laughs> Send them <Yeah>. back. <laughs> I, I mean, the, the only thing that really bothers me, again, is that I didn't get to finish that, that few uh, extra days yeah. of hunting. Uh, but it was the right thing to do to come out. I thought, I really, I woke up that morning, and I thought about staying. But when I went and ha- when I finally saw my brother-in-law, he... Uh, it had been long enough where I'd stopped the bleeding well enough and it had been long enough that he had to cut open all the wounds again and he yeah. pulled it all back. Uh, and uh, he's like, you know, there is pus in here. So, so I'm glad I didn't yeah, decide to stay for a couple of days and have like, some <laughs> infection in my head. Yeah. So, uh, Died from right. stupidity. Is, isn't that like as, as so, uh, I'm still uh, just, you know, elk season here is so short and you only get one. What you get to pick archery, muzzleloader, or several seasons of rifle, and they're only a few days each. And you don't get one, you don't get to choose another season. Yeah. And so I'm just upset because that's like my favorite time of year now. Yeah. And uh, I sent Tim some photos yesterday. I mean, you see that it's gorgeous. Oh, beautiful. It's absolutely yeah. beautiful. High altitude in early September. The bulls should be bugling. They weren't this year. Uh, but you know, it's gorgeous. And so that's, that's my big regret is that I didn't get to finish the season, but yeah, things could be worse and uh, feel pretty lucky that if, I, if whatever hit my head or however I fell, whatever it was, it was right on my temple. And had it been a little harder or a little different, I think it could have been, uh, less than positive results. So. Yeah. I bet there's some filthy hippies, ultimate Frisbee disc lane out there that Boulder field <laughs> <laughs> took a 200 yard lob. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the other thing I think about is just the importance of a flight plan. Is someone knowing kind of wh- where you are, at least yeah. the, the vicinity, just in case, because you, you don't know if you're going to be able to operate your phone or, or maybe you get set like when Tim Wells had that accident over in Africa, his radio was up in his tree in his pack. Yeah. And he was down on the ground bleeding out and he couldn't, he couldn't get up there to, yeah. to, to make the, to make the call out for help. Yeah. In general, I mean, we we're fortunate in the fact that typically we're always hunting with somebody. We're always, these adventures always take place with somebody else for us, you yeah. know, typically. And so the, the plan is always like in dad's instance where he had the tree stand accident the cameraman got him out of there right away, you, you know, so you were thankful for that kind of thing. But in general, your average guy is by themselves and it, it doesn't have to be as epic of a story of a boulder field in Colorado on a mountainside. I mean, it could be literally a, in a I'm windy scenario, a, a limb falling down and hitting you. You know, I know a guy that passed away from a, a limb falling over and sure. hitting him and, you know, yep. back in the woods or a heart attack after he picked up a turkey. Dad, one one year had found a, a guy that, that passed away from a heart attack. They were on a search mission for this guy uh-huh. in public land somewhere. And he had two turkeys uh, and one was over his shoulder and another one was like he, he had maybe shot two or uh-huh. he had a heart attack. 
uh, and, and recovering them. And, and they found them there laying there with the birds. So yeah, a billion different things can happen. It's not going to yeah. stop you from going out. And, but to your point, having a game plan, uh, I think a lot of people with, with cell phone technology now, it's, you're in a better spot to be able to communicate most times. I mean, yeah. not always, but you, you know, to get a text out to somebody or let them know ahead of time, Hey, I'm going to be here. I don't have service. So, you know, at least they know they don't hear from you, right. you know, something weird's happening. They know where you're at. Yeah. So. And, and, and to some degree that technology has made us, uh, at least it's made me a little lazy. I, I've tried to get the, get better over the past couple of years of telling my wife, telling my buddies where, what stand I'm going to be in. Because like I said, if you're separated from your phone or you just aren't lucid enough to operate it, then it's not going to do you any good. Yeah. Someone needs to know where to come find you. Yeah. So, well, I appreciate you sharing the story with us. I mean, when, when we were texting back and forth, I wanted to have you on the podcast like the next day, you're like, I can't move my mouth. My teeth hurt. I can't talk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, uh, like I said, pretty harrowing experience and I'm just happy that it, it didn't turn out worse and, and you're here to talk about it with us. And, you know, if, before we move in, we got a couple other things that we typically do on the podcast that we want to get to, but, uh, I wanted to just two things. First, craziest story, craziest adventure, craziest thing that ever happened to you on one of these. Cause you've climbed the, the, the major peaks all across the, the world. What's the craziest thing that's ever happened to you? Oh, I mean, crazy entails good and bad. Uh, I've had climbing partners next to me fall 4,000 feet to their death. That's not fun, but that's pretty crazy. Uh, and then I've, I've, I've just had some of the best experiences of my life. Just feeling like you ever feel like right where you are and what you're doing is exactly what you were made to do. And so many times in mountaineering, uh, that's how I feel. And mm -hmm. so whether it's East Africa or, or Nepal or the Himalaya or wherever, you know, there are just so many experiences like that where it's like, just look around. I mean, this is incredible. And I feel exactly like this is where I should be right now. And so, you know, nothing too crazy. In fact, in mountaineering, you try to mitigate craziness. Sure. And so everything is, is pretty slow motion thought out, uh, uh, clinical in diagnosis and just having those feelings, those emotions of, yeah, this is, this is exactly where I should be. And this is exactly what I should be doing in general, uh, are, are kind of the best times of my life. So Tim and I feel that way every time we get on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that, that you, you, you have sent me some footage. We worked on a project one time together and it, it didn't end up going anywhere, but you sent me some footage. I don't remember where exactly you were at, but you're on a, you're on a bus, you know, on a side of a mountain with a one side's like, a cliff the other side you I know it's, dude, it's that. it was just watching it was making me sick <laughs> yeah yeah you know just getting to mountains sometimes is the trickiest part uh, a couple of years ago i went to the congo uh, which is not the safest place to be in fact i think it's judged the most dangerous country in the world just because of the people and the politics and i remember uh, we were training uh, rangers within this national park in the Congo, we were training them mountaineering skills mm -hmm. and there, there's some beautiful mountains there and they wanted to add mountaineering tourism to their portfolio to, to help the communities and, and help them have a livelihood and make money. And, and uh, you know, 
these rangers, even on the mountains, would carry their AK-47s. And we, we slept, these huts we slept in were so tiny and so nasty that we were all cramped together. And we slept several nights with the, the buttstock of AKs as our pillows. And <laughs> I remember thinking at the time, like, maybe this isn't the best thing. Uh, <laughs> That's one of those what moments where you life? were not right where you were supposed to be. <laughs> right, right. Could look to a clash. Yes. Getting to the mountains is, is sometimes, again, the, the, the crux, the technical craziness yeah. happened there. Maybe speak to the Pangee Foundation. And I say that, did I say that correctly? Uh, you did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cause Brad's very involved with a, a pretty cool project and has been for a few years now and, uh, and uses, you know, cell, uh, camera technology, like trail camera technology. And, uh-huh. and it's, it's pretty neat in general and, and trying to do some good out there in the world. So take us through that a little bit. Yeah. Thanks. So Pangee, that word is Nepali, Nepal slang for snow leopard. And, I think at this point, I've done something like 20 expeditions to Nepal, the, the greater Himalaya, the big peaks. And what I realized over time is this actually comes back to hunting and, and wildlife and just animals. Uh, I've lived my whole life as a hunter. And that may sound strange for what I'm about to say, but, but what I'm now very involved with is helping save endangered species and snow leopards, which are highly endangered, one of the rarest cats in the world, saving those cats. And in doing so, by helping save endangered species, we're actually teaching children and communities in these uh, disenfranchised communities around the world uh, about the importance of conservation. Um, So many people think conservation and saving species is uh, 180 degrees opposed to hunting, and I don't see it that way. And... I, I think it'd be horrible to ever uh, deny that I hunt and you know, hunters are conservationists. Uh, there are, there are methods and uh, ideologies that I don't agree with within the hunting world, but in general uh, hunting and caring for wildlife and conservation and managing land and taking care of the people around these areas is very much the same as what we're doing in endangered species conservation. So yeah, that, that's become a big part of my life. And more so now than going to these areas to climb these peaks, I'm visiting these areas around the world to help initiate conservation programs based on using endangered species conservation as ways to simultaneously uh, help these, again, poor disenfranchised communities and people around the world. Sure. And then, then I'm sure there's an ecotourism aspect that's, that's related Absolutely. to that. And there's dollars associated with that. I mean, that's the way you bring in resources to help fund, take care of the people and at yeah. the same time, protect the, the local ecology. Tim, you're exactly right. By saving apex predators like snow leopards, you actually save the entire ecosystem. When you save and protect the entire ecosystem, you protect tourism. And in Nepal, uh, places in East Africa, places anywhere around the world, anywhere in Asia, anywhere where you have an intact ecosystem and their economy, their GDP is is tremendously based on ecotourism. So you're helping essentially save their bank account. Yep. You're helping them have livelihoods into the future by protecting the great outdoors. 
Well, e- even think about locally, um, one of our DeerCast writers, Billy Cooper, he's 70, maybe 71. He remembers a time here in Missouri where seeing a whitetail was about as common as seeing a unicorn. I mean, mm-hmm. they, and the same thing with wild turkeys. turkeys. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we can talk globally. We can also talk locally about what hunting and what, what <clears throat> targeted um, conservation efforts have done to species and brought them back from the brink and said like Canada geese, even Canada geese were dad was telling me that he's like, man, I never, if you saw one of those growing up, he's like, it was like, you yeah. saw it was Christmas, you and know, come like early. rats all over the yeah. place. Like, it's we, probably gone the other come, way. Yeah. I have them all over our yard all the time in the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but, but hunting has been, waterfowlers have been a big part of that comeback yeah. process. Absolutely. And just the permit process paying for your hunting license. Yep. You know, in Colorado, it's something like a billion dollar industry, just, just buying license. And then that goes back into conservation. So yeah, we could go on and on, but, but the parallels are, are not dissimilar in uh, our passions in life uh, between hunting and conservation and, and protecting species. And then how that also helps these communities in, in education and livelihood opportunities well into the future. You'd have to see some of the trail camera pictures that Brad has sent me over the years of these snow leopards in the wild. I mean, it's crazy stuff. Just, you know, in absolute wild, that, that camera might've been there for how long, you know, before it actually gets, time. you know, before <laughs> yeah. it gets a picture or before they go to get, pick it back up or whatever. It's, it's crazy. And they're beautiful, beautiful shots. Like it, a lot of times you're using, Reconics cameras too, aren't you? Yeah, we're just using we're using over the counter trail cameras, just like anyone would buy to to collect information on deer or turkey. That's yeah. what we're using. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty cool. Can't wait. Maybe I'll get a snow leopard on one of my Reconics cameras. I doubt it. <laughs> I don't think so. Too. <laughs> Something would be wrong. <laughs> Cool. Well, right. we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes to the Pangee Foundation so folks cool. can check that out and get a little more information. Absolutely. Um, we should hop into our shout outs. Okay. Real quick, let's do the shout outs for this episode. You go first. Okay. Uh, this is this is from this is on Apple uh, Apple Podcast from Eat Sleep Hunt Repeat LOL. <laughs> he or she says this is absolutely one of the best podcasts that I listen to. Love all the great tips, the hilarity, the soundboard is awesome. Also like the wildlife word and the question of the day. Keep the episodes coming. He said the soundboard was awesome. He gets an applause. We agree with that. <laughs> all right, next one. So this one comes from Cameron Dowd. Congrats, guys, on two great deer. He must be referencing our last podcast. Love how it happened the same evening, two different ways. Love the podcast as well. Listen to it every week. Watch and wait for it to drop each week. Even try to anticipate the soundboard at certain times. LOL. Keep up the great work. Um, anticipate this. <laughs> So, what'd you think of that, Brad? <laughs> good, good. Yes, right up your alley. That's impressed. I can <laughs> tell. Like Terry's bunkhouse. <laughs> That's right. You can even smell it. So All right. true. <laughs> Let's get on to the question of the day. Well, we, we should also say thank you to everyone who's leaving feedback. Yeah. We love hearing from you guys, even if it's not positive. If it's just, I asked him today. I go, do we have any negative ones? I like reading the negative ones just as much. <laughs> so. I'm sure we'll get some. Yeah. All right. So on to the question of the day. It's probably brought to you by Plano Cases. Protect your passion. Hi, my name is Nick Ramovich. I'm from Western Pennsylvania. My question for you today is when should I be hunting fields or 
acorns. I hunt hardwoods a lot where I live in Western Pennsylvania, but we have some CRP fields that we mow down and in and around our tree stands. It seems like the acorns are a lot better at the beginning of the year and during the rut, but in between them times, it seems like the fields are better. would like your input and thanks for the show. Keep doing what you're doing. All right. Thanks, Nick, for the question. <clears throat> kind of a multi-part question there. But in general, it's probably a little bit different for us here in the Midwest than it is in Western PA. And where I've been in Pennsylvania, I mean, it's I mean, it's somewhat of a mountain, mountainous terrain. I, I'm not exactly sure what, what his setup is. I mean, he explained it there. But in general, the way we like to do it typically is early season, late season, we are hunting the fields, you know, middle of the season right around the rut is when we kind of hone in on the timber. Yeah. Uh, now, if, if you do have a big mass crop, he's talking about acorns dropping, uh, that changes it a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times deer won't get up out of their bedroom if there's acorns all around. They don't have to move very far. So in the south, they're called acorns. Yeah, acorns. So you you might be honing in, you know, when the, you start hearing them or you start noticing that they're dropping and they're fresh, you know, which I, I'm not sure out there, but right now is a good time to be hunting acorn flats here. That's how I killed my deer. Yeah. So, you know, you, you want to hone in on where they're at. Basically you want to go where they're going to be. And if you've got a big acorn crop, I would think that's where they're going to be. If there's CRP fields, it's not like the, yes, they might be grazing and eating and uh, you know, in, in that, but it's not like that's uh, a huge palatable destination, destination yeah. food source for them necessarily. I wouldn't think anyways. That, that was kind of my take too, that, that, when the mass crop drops, that's when you want to be in the timber and or when the rut's happening and they're chasing does and they're moving. And then fields are like, if, if it's green field and it's palatable, then that's probably early season. And depending on what's there, it could be a late season option yeah. potentially too. Uh, but I mean, it, it's deer hunting is so local. It's like politics. Everything is local. You got to know exactly. Bring politics into this <laughs> Sorry, time. I can't help it. Haven't you Political learned your lesson? <laughs> <laughs> but you, you have to know kind of what's happening locally, whether that's trail cams, observational sits, those kind of things you learn over time. Yeah. Uh, but don't be afraid of the big timber. Yep. Great question, Nick. I don't know if you have anything to add, Brad, a big time Missouri deer hunter. Do you have anything you want to add to the question of the day answer? You know what, what stinks about Colorado is where we hunt, there are no acorns and I'm so used, I'm still a Midwestern kid at heart. And and it's so dry out here. It's such a different type of hunting that I just hear that question and just makes me want to go back and, and hunt, whether it's the big timber or a food plot. It just, oh, it's, it, it pulls at my heartstrings. So uh, great questions. And I'm glad you guys are still doing what you do. When, when I was, I, uh, I had fleshed my, my uh, deer skull because I'm going to do a Euro mount for it. And as I was cutting open kind of the jaw area, I cut through the esophagus and there were half chewed acorns inside. It's cool to see that it was mid, mid swallow. <laughs> Poor well, guy. Sounds like you're a jerk. <laughs> well, can I say I didn't have time to let him finish his bite. <laughs> All right. Um, wildlife. Well, yeah. Wildlife word of the day. And then I want some funny story about Mark Terry. could be either, could be both from Brad before we leave and then we'll let him go. I'm sure he's a busy guy training for his next mountainous adventure <laughs> death, death defying. yeah exactly <laughs> okay so the wildlife word is brought to you by hunter specialties makers of the comprehensive sent away line of scent elimination products so uh, uh releaser pheromones indicate a doe's readiness to breed and primarily come from 
this part of their body. Orbital sockets, preorbital glands, metatarsal gland, or the urogenital area. Hmm. Well, we always let our guests go first. Brad, what's your guess? <laughs> Where do the releaser pheromones come from? I, I'm not going to answer that. Someone else step up to the plate. I'm going to go with B, preorbital glands. I'm really surprised you didn't go with urogenital because that would have been the way to go. Is that the answer? Yep. yep. The, these are the, the, the pheromones actually contain the chemicals that tell a buck that a doe is about ready to breed and they come from the urogenital area. Well, I think it was a trick question. All right. <laughs> this show sucks and it was rigged and I hate it. All right. So, before we leave, Brad, you got to give me something on the boys. You know, I think I filmed Mark and Terry for about four years, four or five years. All the good stories I really can't say publicly. <laughs> <laughs> but but I got to tell you, those four or five years, every deer season, which would what run September to January, yeah. uh, the best times of my life. We never had a bad time. It was fantastic. But one of the first times I was filming with Terry, it was in Illinois and he wanted to go to these, these stands, a set. And I don't think he'd been there in a couple of years. <laughs> and we went in the morning. He, it, for the life of him, he couldn't find the things. That's we're looking up in the tree. We, we didn't <laughs> know, know where we were. Somewhere. And finally we found them. And you know, they're, they're not known for putting their stands low to the ground. I mean, the, the, their stands are so high. And at that time we were using the screw in steps. And all, you know, that was kind of the, the way we did things back then. And all the steps, the trees had basically grown around the, the, the screw. And so I'm barely being able to get up into this stand. I step on the stand. Terry's going to be sitting in and I get in my stand. There's no seat. There's no seat. <laughs> and Terry's like, we're going to do an all day sit. <laughs> oh, all day sit where you stand all day. <laughs> Terrible for you. So I stood, I stood for nine hours. Oh, and I remember thinking, it's brutal. And, well, Terry's there, you know, dozing off every once in a while. <laughs> and to this day, he and I laugh about that. I stood for nine hours in this junker tree stand that clearly he had not been to in years. And, and, to the, yeah, to this day, we laugh about that. And, you know, it's funny how, how these not-so-fun situations over the years turn into some of the funniest memories. And, uh, I mean, we, we never had a bad day. We never had a bad day in all those years. It was fantastic. <laughs> That's great. I'm sure it was your fault because back in those days, they did have a certain kind of a tree stand. I remember where they would always pack in this like piece of material that you would put on the one like a hammock almost kind of like that. Yeah. Where you put it on one side of the stand and then you'd stretch it and barely would stretch far enough to uh -huh. get to the other side. And that's your seat. And I'm sure this was your fault somehow. I'm sure he let you know of it. I'm sure he never let you live it down. Matt, as you know, whether it was my fault or not, it was my fault. <laughs> <laughs> I know it well. And I was, and I was criticized strongly uh, uh by both mark and terry i'm sure <laughs> boy did you hear about what brad did they criticized <laughs> didn't, bring they seat in. didn't bring his seat into the hunt that all day said he wasn't planning on it until he saw you didn't have a seat <laughs> <laughs>
Right. Jeez. That's a good one. That's a good story. One we could actually share. So kudos, Brad. <laughs> the Drury Outdoor Spanking Machine. That's it, man. It's you you get you get uh indoctrined to some <laughs> that's combat hazing pay, here. Yeah, yeah, that's right. No doubt. <laughs> well, if if folks uh if folks want some deer cast swag, it's coming. Oh, hey. Oh, I got one on. <laughs> Can we see this? <laughs> I don't know. That's right. We have some new stuff coming. We've been working on some new gear and uh, we're going to launch a new website here within the next week or so. And the new gear, it's being shipped in right now. So um, new hats, some new pullovers, fleece pullover, uh, lightweight stuff. I want to see some hero shots of people wearing their deer cast swag. There's a deer cast hat. Pretty nice, actually, that new deer cast hat. So looking forward to it. It's coming. Make great Christmas presents. Just saying. All right. That's right. <laughs> All right. I anticipated to sell out. <laughs> Brad, thanks so much for hopping on with us. Glad you recovered. Glad your face is back to normal. As normal as it can be. As normal as it can be. No, this has been fantastic. Fantastic. My pleasure. Love you, buddy. Thanks for joining us and uh, look All forward right. to the next time you come into St. Louis, we can have that beer. Talk about Absolutely. the good stories. Absolutely. All right, guys. <laughs> Take care. Thanks All so much. Right. Until next time, everybody, be safe, identify your targets, and peace out. Every hunt starts with a game plan, like knowing when and what to plant. So get DeerCast and get ahead of your game.